There is a blessing in being persecuted for believing in Jesus. It says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Jesus said that in the Sermon on the Mount. There is a blessing. There is great reward in heaven, Jesus said. So it's natural for those who are persecuted to look forward to that reward, to look forward to heaven, to look forward to the return of Christ. So the great by and by, when the roll is called of yonder. But in the meantime, we are to be lights shining in the darkness in our communities. As we walk through the valley of the shadow of darkness, the shadow of death, our great comfort is to know that Christ is with us, that God is with us. And yes, a table has been prepared before us even in the presence of our enemies. And actually, those who persecute us aren't our enemies. They're just being beaten to death by the enemy. A table of food, fellowship, and fruitful labor has been set before us. Let's come to the table this morning as we look at the church of Thessalonica that's trying to be a light in the darkness of intense persecution and see how they are called to the table in the presence of their enemies. Okay, that's what we're going to do this morning. Last week, someone asked me how we can cover an entire New Testament letter like 2 Thessalonians, which is what we're looking at today, how we can cover one letter in one sermon. Right? You're probably all asking that. Well, I explained it in this way. It's kind of like if you were from Thessalonica, let's say you were an everyday worker when Paul visited there about a month ago. Let's say it was about a month ago. And, and he, or a few months ago. And he had been there for, for about a month when he came. He shared the gospel with you and with your other Greek friends. Many of you became believers in Jesus. One day, one day, you're out and you run into one of your friends. And you have a conversation that goes something like this. Hey, Joe. I, I was looking for Greek names, but I'm just going to use Joe and Sam. <laughs> hey, Joe. How are you doing? Hey, Sam, I'm fine. Well, Joe, did you hear that Paul sent us another letter? No, really? Yeah. I was over at Jason's house just last night when he read it to us. No kidding. Wow. Well, what did he say? Well, I don't remember it word for word, but he said a lot of nice things about us. Our faith in Jesus our love for each other, our endurance through these persecutions. Lots of prayers and instructions, but really three main things. Three main things. First, he wrote about the persecutions we're facing, right? Yeah. Then he addressed Jesus' return. Wow. And he finally warned us about being idle. Those three things. Wow. Sounds like he pretty much covered what's going on around here. Well, what did he tell us to do? Well, the big thing I remember was for us to stand firm and hold on to what we were taught. That's what I remember. And I think what encouraged me most about that was to realize that when we stand firm, we show God to be real to others and we glorify him. Wow, that is encouraging. Thanks, Sam. Well, I got to get back to work. Yeah, me too. See you later. Well, there you go. 
There's a sermon. <laughs> Maybe I should just go home. <laughs> well, that's a, that's a quick picture of what I hope to do in this sermon. It's like Sam telling Joe what he heard in the letter. And I, was, I imagine it wasn't too long before Joe went over to Jason's house to hear it for himself or maybe read it if he could read. So that's what I want to do this morning, maybe in a little bit more detail. Um, then, I want to turn it, uh, then I want to sum it up with a couple of key perspectives and a final exhortation to stand firm, which is the title of this sermon. But first, let me just pray. Lord God, we come before you, Lord, we're excited to be together. Lord, we're just so thankful to see uh, Dennis get baptized, uh, Lord, to, to see the baptismal filled and somebody getting dunked and the experience of going into the water and coming out and living the new life and the symbol that that, that has and then hearing the Windjammers Quartet, what fun it is this morning and to see people here, uh, to be together, to have coffee and uh, a little bit of sweetness after. Lord, we just thank you for the sweetness that it is to be together. And Lord, as we uh, look at this uh, sermon from as we hear this sermon from 2 Thessalonians, God, I pray that you'd be with us. Empower this message with your Holy Spirit. Help us to walk away with something to be different in and to do. We just thank you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, last week, Jonah kicked off, uh, too high. Kicked off our sermon in the series uh, of the Great Commission, the Great Commission series. You remember what the Great Commission is, uh, that it was when Jesus gave us the command to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth, to share the gospel to all creation, and to make disciples of all nations. Well, since January, we've been walking through the book of Acts. So Luke wrote the gospel of Luke, and then he wrote the book of Acts. And so we've been walking through the book of Acts following the spread of the gospel, starting in Jerusalem with humble beginnings, and then moving to Judea and Samaria, and finally out into the rest of the Roman world, and even to Rome itself, even to the household of Caesar himself. That's what we get to at the very end of Acts. Well, what we saw in the book of Acts is something in mission circles that we call the apostolic expansion of the church. The apostolic expansion of the church. It's characterized by going to new places, sharing the gospel with new groups of people. And it's what we saw as we saw the book of Acts. And the, the actual apostles went out and did it. But the apostolic expansion of the church is characterized by that kind of newness. You're going out. You're going to new places. What we're focusing on now through this letter, and the letter last week, is on a specific geographical area. It's a place where Paul visited on his second missionary journey, and you can read about it in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17. The expansion of the church is a little different now that we look at a specific area. It's a little different from the apostolic expansion. It's what we call in mission circles as the organic expansion of the church, the organic expansion of the church. It's when people, listen to this explanation, it's when people who are insiders in their culture, 
who are known in their communities walk with God long-term. Sound familiar? And they share the gospel with their family and relational networks, and they serve as regional representatives of Christ by living out the gospel in word and deed. That sound familiar? That's the organic expansion of the gospel. This is what we see happening in Thessalonica. As Paul wrote his two letters from Corinth a few months after leaving there. That's the context. He went down to Corinth. He went to Berea, Athens, and then down in Corinth. And from Corinth, he's there for about a year and a half. And during that time, he writes these two letters. They're actually the first two letters that were probably written chronologically in the scriptures. Some people think Galatians might have been, but it's it's, it's either that or 1 and 2 Thessalonians. But remember, when Paul... Jacob, could you grab me my water bottle? Thanks. Thank you. When Paul left Thessalonica, he had to leave in a hurry. He had to leave in a hurry. In his first letter, he actually talks about it. He says he had to, he was torn away. The word torn away is related to, is, is a Greek word related to orphaned. He was actually orphaned from them. And in his description, he describes it as kind of like a sudden death, suggesting that he didn't even have a chance to say goodbye. That's how sudden it was. It was like that. When somebody dies, you don't always have a chance to say goodbye. That's what it was like for Paul leaving uh, Thessalonica. Well, why did he have to leave so quickly? Why did he have to leave so quickly? Well, it was because of the harsh persecutions that erupted there. The harsh persecutions. We know from the visit by Timothy and the two resulting letters that Paul wrote that this persecution continued after Paul left and it intensified. This was a persecuted church. Thessalonica was a persecuted church. So this is the first thing that Paul covered in his second letter to the Thessalonians is this persecution. He began the letter with a grateful affirmation for their growing faith and increasing love. And this is kind of wild. He went on to say how he boasts, not about himself, but he boasts about their steadfastness and endurance in the midst of the continuing persecution. So he's boasting about them and how they're staying strong. But you know, in that whole section, the first chapter, I don't know how you do it, but when I study the Bible, sometimes I look at, give me all the affirmations, give me all the prayers, and I say, give me all the instructions. I didn't find any instructions in the first chapter. He gave them a perspective on how to view and endure persecutions, but he didn't tell them to do anything different than they were actually doing in the first chapter. Isn't that interesting? Maybe when you look at it, you'll find something I didn't. He reminded them that Jesus will set them right, will set all things right when he returns. He will grant them relief and repay those who afflict them. Those who don't know God, those who do not obey or listen, is what that means, listen to the gospel of Jesus. And he described their destiny. Now, this is pretty tough. He described the destiny of those who do not know Jesus and who do not not listen to the gospel in terms of eternal destruction and exclusion from the presence of the Lord. 
and from the glory of his might. He wrote this almost as if, the way he writes it is with such intensity, it's written almost as if to stir up a sense of compassion and empathy for those that are persecuting him. When you understand their eternal destiny, it, doesn't it stir up a certain sense of, of, of empathy? Kind of like the empathy that Jesus showed from the cross when he prayed to God to forgive those who put him there. It, Jesus knew what heaven was feeling like when that happened. He knew and trusted the justice of God, Peter said in his letter. And so he prayed for those who persecuted them. He had a sense of compassion and empathy for those who put him there. And I think when Paul describes the destiny of those who do not know Jesus, he does it, in that, and that's what it ten, turns out to do. Well, before I move on to the second theme of the letter, I just want to pause here on this first theme, persecution. Persecution and suffering clarify things. Nobody wants it. But persecution and suffering clarify things. In this case, it clarified who the believers in Jesus, who were putting their trust in the saving work of the gospel, who they were and who they were not. It did. It clarified that. And it clarified the future hope and eternal destiny of those who believe and those who don't. So he talks about it in that first chapter. One looks forward to the return of Christ. One dreads it. Those who want nothing to do with God in this life get exactly what they want in the next. Those who want nothing to do with God in this life get exactly what they want in the next. Exclusion from the presence of the Lord and His glory. It turns out to be the ultimate FOMO. That means fear of missing out. And you miss out on the glory of God. If you're here today and have not come to Christ to believe in the gospel... I urge you to make today the day. That's all I'm going to say about it. I just urge you today to, to make to, today the day. And for those who trust in Jesus now and pay the price of persecution and suffering, they eagerly look forward to his return and the associated relief from the affliction. It's probably why the African slave culture was so rich in songs talking about the return of Christ. We didn't tell many people this, but Jonah and I, during Lent, we did a devotional. I think it was just the two of us. And the devotional was based on all of the uh, slave spirituals um, from, the African, from the American slavery. It was rich. And, and I would actually look them up and, and, and try to get, you know, hear them and, and sing them in my quiet times. Um, and many of them were on the return of Christ because they were undergoing such intense persecution for centuries. Well, this brings me to the second theme of the letter, the return of Jesus. Okay, so the return of Jesus is what the second theme of the letter is, the second chapter, basically. Imagine, imagine this. What your reaction might have been if while you were enduring persecution and looking forward to Jesus' return, to hear some rumor that Jesus has already returned and you apparently missed it. <laughs> well, 
That's what happened to the Thessalonians. That's actually what happened to the Thessalonians. There was some message they received, supposedly from Paul, that Jesus had already returned. So when Paul found out about this, he wrote to them to correct that false report, that fake news that happened. He, called, he wrote, it's probably the reason he wrote the letter was that false report. He wrote to correct it. And he assured them that the day of Christ's return had not yet come. And it would not come until certain things happened. And he describes some of those in the second uh, chapter of the second letter. Apparently, when he was with them, he, had given, he was only with them for a month. <laughs> and somehow he had covered this topic in the first month of them coming to Christ about this, this man of lawlessness that was going to have to appear. And there were certain restraining forces that he describes that are keeping him from appearing. And he doesn't say in his second letter what those are. I sure would like to know. Perhaps they were the role of good civil government that Romans 13.3 talks about that that's a restraining force, that could have been that. Or maybe he was referring to the idea that Jesus talked about, that the gospel must first be preached to all nations, then the end could come. I'm not sure which one it was. There was a certain restraint on the man of lawlessness that, that, is, that is operative. It could have been good civil government. It could have been the spread of the gospel that has to come first. Maybe it was something else. Whatever the case, Paul concluded that section with an exhortation. And that exhortation was basically the title of this sermon, to stand firm, to hold on to what they were taught. And he prayed that God would comfort their hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Every good work and word. Every good work. And that leads me to the third theme, <laughs> to the third theme of the letter, a warning against idleness. It naturally goes from persecution to the return of Christ to a warning against idleness. You see, in Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, he actually addressed this. Before he addressed Christ's return in the first letter, he urged them to aspire to live a quiet life, to mind their own affairs, and to work with their hands. And he had previously instructed them about that when he was there in person. So he was there in person, he instructed them to lead a quiet life, to mind their own affairs, and to work with their hands. And then he repeats it in the first letter. This is actually what the organic expansion of the church is like. That's a good description, by the way. To live a quiet life, mind your own affairs, and work with your hands. But then... He addressed the subject of Christ's return in the first letter, back to the first letter, and he told them at the end of the first letter, it's one of my favorite verses, it's uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.14. There was one night, one evening, I was working with a guy that I was equipping to help make disciples at West Point. Gosh, it was almost 40 years ago. We spent an o a whole evening on that verse, 1 Thessalonians 4.14. In that verse, it says, Warn the idle. 
and I don't have time to, that could be a whole sermon in and of itself. But that's where he addresses idleness in the first letter. So he's addressed it when he was there in person. He addresses it in the first letter. But now he addresses it again in the second letter, but in much more detail. I think he found out that idleness is kind of an issue in Thessalonica. As a matter of fact, in the second letter of Thessalonians, in chapter 3, verse 11, he uses a word play. Norell identified this. One of the things that Norell and I do is uh, we study these uh, chapters together, and we sit there for our quiet times in the morning. We both come down about the same time, and we try to be quiet for the first hour. But usually we're so bubbling over with what God's showing us, we're like, uh, I got to talk. Mike, did you see this? <laughs> and she said, did you notice in uh, uh, verse 311 that there's a word play? You should look it up, Mike. <laughs> so Norell always helps me with my sermons. The word play, it goes like this. He said, some of you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Doesn't that sound like a word play? It is. Um, that if you look up the Greek... The Greek word for, birds, for busy at work is ergazome. And it comes from the physics term erg, which is a unit of work in physics. Erg, ergazome. So busy, ergazome. The Greek word for busy body is peri ergazome. Peri ergazome. It's the same word, but it adds the, pref the prefix. This is kind of funny. It adds the prefix para, which means about. So one works and the other is about work or maybe talking about work. So when I shared that with somebody else in the last week, they said, oh, that's kind of like meetings, right, Mike? <laughs> and I said, well, okay, I hope some of our meetings are more than just about work, that we're actually doing work. But yeah, it's kind of, it, it reminds me of the, the image that comes to mind, right, where, you, and I don't mean to slam construction workers or su supervisors, I mean to actually lift up construction workers, it's the supervisors. Um, it's, it's like a, the people in the ditch digging, they're working, and, the, in, in the, in the, and they're surrounded by a five or six people watching them, supposedly supervising, and maybe they're, one's busy, the other's busy buddies, I don't know, they're, I'm sure that supervising is good, but, um, so... Busy and busybodies. There were people who were being busybodies. We were called to work. Now, the theme of working hard versus idleness here in the Thessalonian church was puzzling. As I read it, it's kind of puzzling. What caused it? Doesn't it make you wonder? If you read the book, you're like, why is this such an issue here? I mean, it made me think about the Athenians at the Areopagus. They're kind of idle. They do nothing at all, all day, except talk about new ideas. Maybe it was part of their culture. I don't know. I heard something about uh, a practice among the affluent. I think I read that in the Bible Project. That was interesting. Or maybe, just maybe, it was a sense of resignation and irresponsibility because you know that Christ is coming back anyway. You know who wins, so why bother? Right? It's like, 
watching uh, the Super Bowl replay. You kind of know who wins, so you, you, know, you, you can sit back and enjoy it maybe differently. Well, you know who wins, so why bother? And what does it mean to wait for Christ's return? Does it mean you stop working while you wait? I don't think so. Well, whatever the reason, Paul is very clear that idleness is not the way we should live as Christians. Hard work and responsibility are the hallmarks of genuine Christianity. Now, with regard to the return of Christ, let me just say a couple things. I understand the sense of anticipation that we, by all rights, should feel about the return for Christ. We should look forward to the day if we are in Christ, when we will see him face to face and we'll greet each other with a smile and hopefully we'll hear those sweet words, right? Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter the joy of the Lord. That's what we look forward to. And there's a legitimate place for saying, come Lord Jesus, come soon, come soon. Especially for those who are suffering and undergoing persecution, right? especially for them. They call and they ask Jesus, come soon. But there's also a legitimate place for hoping for more time because there's still so much work to do. To this day, the gospel has not been shared with all the nations, which Jesus said must come first. To this day, that's not complete. Even in our own communities, our own neighbors, There are thousands who do not know Christ, and many of them do not know anyone who knows Christ. Some of you know I work with the Navigators. Our vision is to see a laborer for Christ, someone who can make disciples of Christ, to see a laborer for Christ next door to everywhere. That's our vision. I think it should be our vision to see a laborer for Christ next door to everywhere. So that everywhere you go, whether it's in a a dorm room or a barracks or a neighborhood or a workplace, that there'd be a, a laborer for Christ next door to there. And we're not there yet. We're not there yet. You know that. There are still many unreached people groups, whole groups of people that don't have access to the gospel or anyone who will share it with them. Have you ever prayed something like this? This is kind of a wild prayer. (laughs) I remember the first time I prayed it. Yes, Lord, I want you to come soon. I can't wait to be with you. But can you hold off on your return until so-and-so comes to Christ? Have you ever prayed that? Now that's missional. And I think this prayerful desire is also legitimate. So we have work to do. We have work to do. Many of us are involved in the apostolic expansion of the church of Jesus through our prayers and financial support. Some of us are actually doing that, going out in the mission field. Many of us are involved in the apostolic expansion through prayer and financial support. But most of us are personally involved on a day-to-day basis in the organic expansion of the church where we live, work, and play right here in Midcoast, Maine. And we feel some of the heat of living in one of the most spiritually secular climates in the U.S. 
Did you know that Cumberland County is either the first or second most secular counties in the United States? And the things Paul said to, uh, said to the Thessalonians in his second letter, they still, those things still apply to us today. Let's stand firm in our faith in Christ in the midst of societal pressure. Stand firm. Let's stand understandably with winsomeness to our friends as we do so, but let's stand firm in our faith in the midst of societal pressures. Let's stand firm in the hope of Christ's return in the midst of confusing signals from people and sometimes discouraging news of the day. Let's stand firm in our hope that Christ is going to return. He's coming back and he does win. It may be 28 to 3, and you might be 3, but you're going to win. <laughs> Christ is going to win. I know, that was a Patriots uh, reference. Let's stand firm in our everyday work, in our everyday work. And let's stand firm in wor the work of sharing the gospel with the next generation. He has prepared a table before us in the presence of our enemy. We come to the table of faith, love, and hope. Faith, love, and hope. Those were the themes from the first letter. In our work, labor, and steadfastness. Let's stand firm in those. That's the table of, that we come to. Let's stand firm in those together. Let me pray. Oh, Lord, maybe we don't have the kind of persecution that the Thessalonians experienced, but we do feel the heat of societal pressure and the opposition to the knowledge of God all around us. Help us to stand firm in our faith in Christ's work on the cross his death on our behalf, paying for our sins so that we can be forgiven and free, looking forward to your return. Lord, help us to stand firm in our everyday work. Help us to stand firm in the work of sharing the gospel with our family, friends, and neighbors by our words and our work. Help us to stand firm to the end by your power and grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.